right now on Matter of Fact, life after the COVID-19 vaccine. After I got my second dose, I was elated. An emotional reunion as a grandmother visits her family after nearly a year apart. But it's a delicate balancing act. Then, an unlikely state leading the way in the vaccine rollout. What advice would you give leadership in other states who might say, yeah, West Virginia, small state? Is one simple plan a solution to saving millions of lives? Plus, the future of work. As vaccinations increase, will remote work remain an option? And preserving the unique heritage of the Low Country. I think what it means to be Gullah is first, it's a culture, it's a language, it's cuisine. How the descendants of slaves held on to their rich history for centuries. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. For the past 11 months, we've been trying to protect ourselves and keep our families safe. It was overwhelming at times and still is for many. The virus has killed half a million people in the United States. While the arrival of a vaccine months ago offers some hope, securing an appointment can be a frustrating experience. Those who've received a shot tell us it's a dose of relief as they try to regain some semblance of their old lives. My name is Laura Bryant, and I've had my second vaccine on February 5th. Before I got the vaccine, there was no visiting my grandchildren. The closest I got was opening the door and seeing them outside or going to my window and, and watching them play. I live actually in the same building as my mother, uh, just nine floors up. My kids very quickly learned the, fr the phrase, six feet from grandma. So the door <laughs> yes. would open and they'd know exactly how far they could be from her. I felt very sad knowing they were so close to me, but I couldn't touch them. My, my daughter's birthday in, in April was the first real sort of milestone. And she said, you know, I miss you, Grandma. And sort of everybody on the Zoom just started, you know, breaking out in tears. It was heartbreaking for me for them not to be as, as close as they had been. After I got my second dose, I was elated. I was happy that I could visit with my grandchildren and hopefully go on vacation with my whole family. I have received my first dose of the vaccine. My mother has received both of hers. Yesterday was my 80th birthday. I was invited upstairs to celebrate with my family. Finally for us to be celebrating with my mother um, with my kids there um, just felt Again, just very relieved and very sort of a joyous occasion. It was a wonderful day. It was a wonderful day. Even after vaccination, CDC guidelines call for wearing a mask and keeping a safe distance until it is deemed safe to pull back on precautions. While many states are struggling to get shots into arms, West Virginia, a state that usually scores the lowest in health outcomes from obesity to diabetes and drug overdoses, is not. It's vaccinated nearly 10% of its population. That is one of the highest rates in the country. I spoke with Dr. Clay Marsh, West Virginia's COVID czar. The 10% number um, of people who have been vaccinated, is that vaccinated with the first dose, vaccinated with both doses? What, what's that number represent? In West Virginia, we are really focused at, at putting vaccines in arms, so that is both doses. Wow, wow, so even greater than I, I thought. West Virginia, um, 
I think maybe the biggest challenge to getting doses in arms, as you guys like to say, is that you're a rural state. Talk to me a little bit about what you were able to do to make your vaccination program such a success with that particular obstacle in mind. I think the first thing we did is we were very clear about our intent, you know, going from complex to simple. And we really decided early, the governor did, uh, that we wanted to save lives. And people over 70 made up 77.5% of our deaths. So we really targeted that population to be able to vaccinate. I think that's been very successful. You also used independent pharmacies, which is a different strategy than some other states have had. Why did you do that? And, and was that key to your success as well? The uh, representative from our board of pharmacy and the head of our long-term care association told us that if we wanted to reach our nursing home population the quickest, that we needed to go with the over 200 private and community and family-owned uh, pharmacies um, in West Virginia that were in all parts of the state. So we ended up talking with Operation Warp Speed and did not initially activate the federal pharmacy program, but instead went with this network of, of community pharmacies. So tell me, how many doses have you been able to give out and how have you been able to, to I've heard you're stretching some of the doses. What does that mean exactly? Generally, we've been over 100% of injections in arms versus the doses that we've received because we knew early in the pandemic response, because our pharmacists were handling all of our doses, that the Pfizer vials, which were at least initially thought to have five doses, actually oftentimes have six. And the Moderna vials, which have 10 doses, oftentimes have 11. So we've been able to maximize the number of doses that we've been able to get out of the vials and to be able to put in the arms of our citizens. West Virginia is not a very diverse state, and yet your numbers for diverse people who've been vaccinated are, are impressive, are high. How are you able to do that in a state that you know, doesn't really stand out for its diversity? West Virginia was ranked by the Kaiser Family Foundation as the most vulnerable state. And we've deeply involved our African-American community uh, in a task force and started to work with leaders in the faith-based communities to be able to reach all West Virginians and try to help people feel safe taking the vaccine because initially vaccine hesitancy was an issue for us, but that seems to be much better today than it was at the beginning of the vaccine response. What advice would you give leadership in other states who might say, eh, West Virginia, small state, 1.8 million people. What can they tell us about, you know, learning about the vaccine? What can you tell them? Get simple and clear on what you're trying to do. Measure what you're doing and understand your own needs. Bring people together, you know, rally around the idea that we're here to help each other. It's a very personal thing to many of us in West Virginia. And that to me is the secret sauce of how we are performing well. Dr. Clay Marsh, thank you for talking with me. Thank you, Soledad, it's been a pleasure. Coming up, life in the low country. <laughs> how the Gullah made sure their African traditions became part of American history. Gullah, I would say, is the founding cultural significance of the Southeast. But first, will the future of work feel like the past?
Welcome back to Matter of Fact. In cities with rich histories, pieces of the past that don't fit a certain narrative are often forgotten or erased. The city of Charleston sits in the heart of the Carolina Low Country. Charleston was the entry point for nearly half of the slaves who were brought from Africa to the United States. And today, the Low Country remains home to a distinctive group of African Americans known as the Gullah, descendants of slaves who clung to their culture to create their own way of life. You can trace their traditions from the coasts of the Carolinas to Georgia and to Florida. Just before the pandemic hit, our special contributor Joey Chen took us inside the Low Country to see how a new generation is trying to keep the culture alive. Down here where the river meets the sea rises a rich history of a people who coaxed rice to grow amid the brackish waters and built a community that's endured for more than 400 years. They call themselves Gullah, a name that likely came with the enslaved people from West Africa, a name that, even today, keeps their descendants tied to this place. What does land mean to the Gullah people? Everything. Without land, you have, well, you don't have a place to live, and you certainly can't have food. And then there's a spiritual element to land, you know, to be able to see the forests and the trees and to watch things grow. Without land, there is no Gullah culture. Artist Jonathan Green sees that culture in a vibrant, seemingly carefree, almost timeless setting. Everything is about the community. His images center on simple themes, home, harvest, and a place in history. You can trace yourself back how far? I can go back to probably 1830. The first name in my family is Parker and the family that they were uh, in, uh, owned by was the Parker family. The family name. I learned how important that is here when I lived in the Low Country in the early 1980s. Charlestonians and the Chinese, the saying goes, have a lot in common. Yes, you're proud of the heritage and you eat a lot of rice. And sometimes we speak a language that nobody understands. I'll get that, uh, that whole from your keys. You want, yeah. You want to. Chef BJ Dennis is also on a mission to preserve Gullah life, but his art is on the grill. We got our goat. We got our wild ducks. Real Marvin there. At the winter hog slaughter and cookout at Marvin Ross's family home outside of Ridgeville, the community follows recipes and traditions that have been passed down over generations. Everything is all right with you today? <laughs> Say them to me. <laughs> what is the link to history of the community, to heritage? Um, it, was, it was important. I mean, the community shared with each other. Um, if one person was growing a certain vegetable and somebody else had uh, some type of meat or some different type of vegetable, you know, it was almost that trade and barter system. You know, you looked out for each other. All right, what are we eating, DJ? Cracklins. Cracklins. Mm -hmm. The cracklins. The chickens the oysters on the grill, all serve to reunite the community with its rich past, as the chef described to us in the language of his Gullah people. Well, out here today, we namin, but the nampon bit on thing there. So nam eat little food. So you about to eat food. Um, and a lot of cracking we teat and talk like this, yeah. We crack, we teat, we talking to each other. <laughs> it's almost a spiritual thing, spiritual energy. Ready for the next one? Ready for the next one. You're doing things that were ancestral. Yeah, we're gonna stew them, them down with some peas. It's almost you getting, I get into like a zone. 
you know, and I also want to make sure the food tastes good. <laughs> you hold on to as much as you can. Even just a mouthful of rice. A mouthful of rice, yep. It's the same spirit that moves painter Jonathan Green in his art. I mean, that's our sanctity. That's our glue, if you will. Uh, so when I look at painting, I look at painting from a spiritual perspective. I think what it means to be Gullah is, first, it's a culture. It's a language. It's a cuisine. It's music. Gullah, I would say, is the founding cultural significance of the Southeast. A culture seeing rebirth and new growth in the marsh grass of the Carolina coast. Well, you're doing all right. For a matter of fact, I'm Joey Chen in the low country of South Carolina. I ain't gonna watch you too hard this time. Coming up, why a massive power outage caused a spike in air pollution. Plus, a trip to the moon for $99? Of course, there's a catch. Starting to see more of the fallout from the failed electric grid in Texas that left millions without power for days. Another problem is surfacing, pollution. When reductions in power and resources forced major refineries to shut down, they burned and released excess gases to avoid damage to equipment. The Texas Commission on Environmental Quality reports the five largest refineries released almost 337,000 pounds of pollutants in a matter of hours. One refinery released three times its typical annual excess. The pollutants include carbon monoxide, hydrogen sulfide, and benzene. And environmental experts say there is no safe amount of benzene for human exposure. Researchers say all of this could have been avoided if the facilities were winterized and better prepared for an emergency shutdown. This may only be the beginning. Final reports on the chemical releases still aren't due for weeks. Next. How you can land on the moon for less than $100. Well, at least a piece of you can. Finally, we're getting closer to civilian space travel, but hitching a ride in a rocket still costs up to $100 million. You can still make it to the moon, or at least part of you can. For 99 bucks, the startup LifeShip sends you a special card to lick and mail back. Then scientists extract DNA strands from your saliva, put them into a casing the size of a pistachio with the DNA of 1,000 other people. Okay, so now you're asking why? Well, the company says one day future scientists could come across the casings and reconstruct human beings. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.